hello and welcome to the Final Draft Podcast. All summer long, we are exploring incredible works of Australian fiction in the Australian Classics Book Club. It is a panel discussion that takes an incredible piece of Australian writing and together we discuss it both in its context and also what it means for us today. Now, Final Draft broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people. I record on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owner of those, owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, acknowledging that these are unceded lands and the treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. As I mentioned today on the show, I will be joined by a panel and we're going to be discussing Robin Klein's Came Back to Show You I Can Fly. It is such a treat exploring these conversations and representing them to you in, um, in their format, in a way they haven't been presented in years. These go back to the very beginning of the Final Draft podcast and part, are a part of the great history of this show. 30 years strong. <laughs> My name is Andrew Pope. Look, it is a great pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me and for joining the Australian Classics Book Club for Robin Kleins came back to show you I could fly. My name is Andrew Popel, and it is time for the Australian Classics Book Club. It is a segment where we delve back across the history of Australian writing and find a book that is worthy of attention, maybe one that hasn't gotten enough attention lately. Today, we are going to be discussing Robin Kleins came back to show you I could fly, and joining me in the book club today is Jane Pearson. Jane's a senior editor at Text Publishing. I'm also joined by Simone Howe. Simone is the author of Notes from the Teenage Underground, Everything Beautiful and Girl Defective. Now, if you're a regular listener, you would have met Simone a few months ago when we discussed her, along with co-authors Kath Crowley and Fiona Wood, winning uh, CBC A Book of the Year for Older Readers, Take Three Girls. Uh, Simone, Jane, welcome. Thanks, Andrew. Hello. <laughs> Thanks is, for having me. It's, it's great to have you here. It's always so exciting to to share books like this. But before we do get to Came Back to Show You I Could Fly, Jane, uh, can you give us an introduction to Robin Klein? Much much loved and I think probably much um, well-known as she is to many Australian readers. Well, much loved indeed. Um, that was the first thing on my list to mention. Um, not only much loved, award-winning and very, very prolific uh, writer with, I think, around about 70 uh, books over a period of um, about 20 years, so she was working hard. Uh, Robin Klein was born in 1936 in Kempsey in New South Wales. That's somewhere along the mid-north coast of New South Wales into a farming farming family. Um, she was one of nine kids, so... Um, Quite, quite a childhood, I'd imagine, and I think she must have been writing from a very early age because um, she left school, Newcastle Girls High, at the age of 15, um, which probably wasn't all that unusual for, sadly, for um, for girls at that time, um, and had her first story published just a year later. So uh, she was clearly onto something. Um, she had many jobs before becoming uh, a full-time writer uh, about 30 years later. So just to give you a little bit of a taste, she'd been a tea lady, a telephonist, a bookshop assistant, a photography teacher, a nurse, a library assistant, a painter, a potter, and a copper enameler, as well as many other things, including being mother to four children. Um, so busy as well. Um, 
her books are, as you said earlier, so so well loved. Um, people might remember uh, the Penny Pollard books or Hating Al- Alice and Ashley, which was made into a uh, very successful film. Um, the Melling Sisters trilogy, uh, which are wonderful books set in the 1940s and based on her memories of that time. And they're also in the text classics, so I might just slip in. Um, and then came back, to pub, uh, came back to show you I Could Fly was published in 1989. And that uh, was one of the books that won the CBCA award. And it also won a Human Rights Award, which, um, which is very interesting. And I think um, once you read it, you understand why. Um, Robin also won the Drum Keane Medal and the New South Wales State Literary Award um, for uh, for another book. Um, pe- uh, people who grew up or were reading in the 90s just, just love her. She was at the centre of it all. Sadly for me, I didn't discover her until I was an adult, but never mind. I made up for lost time. You're going to have some really interesting perspectives, I feel. Then, Jane, having um, having approached Robin Klein, I guess from a uh, from a different point in your life. Well, that's right. I think um, I had a very um, maternal kind of response to this book um, for for the two main characters in there. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's introduce the book. Came back to show you I could fly begins in a hot, stifling room as Seymour wakes to another claustrophobic day of confinement. He's staying with Thelma, a family friend at her house, while his mother secures him new accommodation. It's school holidays and Seymour must not leave the house on fear that his ne'er-do-well father might kidnap him to some unknown fate. Uh, So in a show of uncharacteristic rebellion, Seymour escapes over the back gate to explore his new world, only to be harassed by some local kids... Fleeing through the nearest gate, Seymour stumbles upon the sunbathing form of Angie, and together they begin a strange new friendship. Now, I'm being purposefully vague here because Robin Klein, in her unveiling of Angie's character in particular, is really it can be quite vague on detail. As we see the world through Seymour's eyes, we're really only privy to his naive view and the insights that are gleaned with the experience of only 11 years. Um, so I confess, uh, my most enduring memory of Came Back to Show You I Could Fly is the cover, um, and Simone, you mentioned this also in, in your intro, that really quite striking cover, something cinematic about it, and you mentioned the, 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 the woman on the cover looks like Meg Ryan. Um, and look, a lot of Robin, uh, the, the other feeling that I get from Robin Klein's books is this feeling that I was discovering something that wasn't part of my everyday world. And we're going to, I think we're going to get more into what about Came Back to Show You I Can Fly that exactly is. But what were both of your experiences and recollections of Came Back? Simone, let's start with you because Jane's already given us a bit of an idea of how she came to Robin Klein. Yep. Um, so I guess I came of age to Robin Klein's writing. So 1989 was the year that I finished high school. So I was already kind of like edging out of the market of reading, you know, young adult literature. But um, I kind of knew about it for a couple of reasons. I mean, I I had read her books prior to it. And one of the things I knew about Robin Klein was that she lived not that far from where I lived. She lived out in the hills in um, the hills of the Dandenong Ranges. So I kind of had this strange connection anyway, just 
from that. And I think whenever I read her fiction now, and especially coming back to it as an adult, it is very much like I'm reading about people I knew or people that I might have known or people who were going to end up that way or that sort of thing. And um, we came back to show you I could fly. My sister had done work experience on the film Dogs in Space and Richard Lowenstein, the director of that film, did a film version of this which wasn't successful, and later he... Well, I don't know if it wasn't successful, sounds a bit harsh, but I'm not sure what happened with it. It sort of a bit disappeared. And later he said something about, uh, you cannot make a film about drug use that's for, for children. Um, and, yeah, so that's kind of like my... how I sort of came to it, because growing up where I grew up, in the suburbs of um, uh, Melbourne... Drugs were around, darkness was around, but it wasn't always immediately in your face. And this book, I think, just does such an amazing job of kind of showing what might be attractive or, you know, and then kind of going behind the surface so that we see what's actually going on. Um, spoilers all over the place. It is, there, it's Sorry. really <laughs> interesting, too, that sort of attractive side of it because it's not so much that we see the attractive side of drug use, but we see um, we see through Seymour's really sheltered eyes, if that metaphor makes sense, um, uh, this glamorous, colourful, life-loving and life-affirming, um, yep. quite spectacular girl who just presents to him everything that his that isn't in his life, and he's immediately attracted to it um, and because we're seeing it through an 11 year old's eyes everything that we pretty quickly come to realize is is sort of kitsch glamour and not very tasteful he sees as, as yep. just the, the epitome of glamour and 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 she just she just steps into his life in a moment where there is nothing but boredom and there she is looking so so wonderful and being so wonderful to him she really she's just She's gorgeous in the way she takes him under her wing and looks after him in a in a really um, beautiful and caring way. I um yeah. I love a bit of kitsch, so I I, I particularly took umbrage at um, her family's reaction to the way she dressed. But I really am interested in in the way we have these two compelling protagonists. Seymour, partly because he is our point of view, and um, Simone, you sort of mentioned there you're you're a bit younger than Angie. Uh, is yep. in came back to show you I can fly when it was released. I was a bit younger than Seymour at the same time, and that really got me thinking about this idea of identification. Uh, do you think in a book like Came Back to Show You I Can Fly there are particular element, elements that might lead a reader to identify with one or the other of our protagonists, be it age, be it gender, be it situation in life? Um, I know that with me, identification wasn't particularly to the characters, but more to the theme and more to the idea of, um, one, Seymour's kind of a loneliness and feeling of kind of, you know, I guess trapped in his own life and, and under, you know, he's, he's not really, he doesn't have his own agency. And I think one of the things that he must see in um, Angie is that she just looks like she does whatever she wants and she does do whatever she wants. And of course she does it to the detriment of everyone around her, but he doesn't realise this because he's 11 and he's only just met her. Um, so there's there's kind of that. I think there's um, also yeah. that sense, or I remember it from my childhood, of terminable boredom. I was just yeah. waiting for something, please, to happen. Um, 
and so I, I felt a strong identification with that, even though I, you know, as an adult, was certainly a lot older than both the protagonists. Do you ever wonder where that boredom went? Because I, I do also remember being bored as a child, and I don't think I am ever bored now to the point that no. I, I, I wish I could be a little bit bored sometimes and not have so many things <laughs> pressing on my brain. We're all just way too busy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Has the world changed or did we just get older? Well, I think the world has changed, but I think it is also kind of the coming of age thing. And I was thinking like this story would have been different if Seymour had been maybe 13, you know, just that little bit older, then it kind of wouldn't work because I think part of the, the fact that Angie, Angie is so kind of lovely with him and pays attention to him, no one's paying attention to him at all, you know. Even his parents aren't even paying attention to him. Um, and she does in this sort of, you know, manner of the, the older sister that you really admire. Um, oh, lost my train of thought, sorry. There is, <laughs> there, is something, something. <laughs> there is something timeless about Seymour, though, and he's constantly referred to by Angie, by the bullies uh, that, that sort of ultimately chase him into Angie's path uh, as a sort of a, a little old man in a child's mm. body. And I wonder if at 13, had, had the events have came back to show you why not fly, had they not transpired for him, whether at 13 he would have still been the same sort of slightly hapless um, yeah, maybe. elderly elderly young man. Well, he learns he learns to stand up for himself um, so, so beautifully and she gives him that gift really I, I think um, and it's really quite beautiful when he does because he's been, he, he notices in himself that he doesn't that he'll, he'll apologise for things that aren't his fault. He'll just assume yep. that he shouldn't be, think that he's somehow responsible for things being not quite right in someone else's eyes. And it's really heartbreaking as you, you sort of want to put your arm around him and go, no, it's okay. Um, but the first time he stands up um, for himself is, is to Thelma, the woman he's staying with, who's, who's really quite sort of strict and, and cold with him, even though you get the sense that she's probably very well-meaning. Um, mm. And when he does tell her that actually what he thinks is that this situation isn't that great and that his mother's over-dramatised and all of that, it sort of all blurts out of him. Um, and he's almost shocked at his own um, behaviour. This He gets this wonderful response um, from her, a, a kind of... Um, acknowledgement of, of all of this and it's so you just see him stand you feel him stand just that little bit taller um, and then of course towards the end when he finally um, confronts Angie with what's actually going on he's really he's really great he's really yeah. slowly but surely learnt from her that you just you just got to say it. You got to <laughs> stand up and do it. Uh, my heart broke a little for Thelma in that scene though because there's no there's no sense of her railing against Seymour. She immediately is compassionate to yeah. his situation. And I wondered perhaps if Thelma was perhaps a little like Seymour herself growing up and maybe maybe mm. there is something of Thelma that that he, that's Seymour's fate of leading a very pro- proper organized orderly life mm. for fear of ever going outside those boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. Um now we've we've sort of talked a little bit about what is happening beneath the surface here under the whimsy of these sort of school holiday excursions that Andy Angie devises for Seymour. There's a story of abuse that emerges. We we learn that Seymour's dad hits him or has hit him, and that his mum really terrorises him in a way that we might sort of recognise as a as a sort of a non physical abuse. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. There's drugs. Um, Angie constantly refers to the flu that she suffers from that, um, that Seymour kind of puzzles through. These are mm-hmm. topics that we still debate as to the suitability for young readers. And in fact, Seymour almost presents himself as the perfect innocent, um, uncorrupted, the sort, of, the sort of young reader that people would like to protect from these topics. Mm. How did you find their treatment in Came Back to Show You I Could Fly? The treatment of these topics. Well, it's interesting because I, you know, read this thinking if this came along now, this would be quite difficult to publish for all those reasons because it'd be like, oh, we've got a young protagonist and we've got um, a, a, a drug addict. Um, this is, you know, no one's going to want kids anywhere near this. Um, but that is to just sort of misunderstand the book so so terribly. Um, because what Robin Klein gives us first is is this beautiful friendship and these two characters who are really full and rounded and she gives us the um, Angie's drug addiction as a you know a terribly destructive part of her but only a part of her we see her and we get to know her before we know about this. And so yeah. we have an understanding of the... Um, we have, have such a um, connection to her before we see her as someone who's a drug addict. So she puts it into a, a really um, wonderful perspective, I think, where it's something that... It, it's an unfortunate and problematic and destructive thing about her, but it's not her. And yeah. um, that seems to me to be such a wonderful a wonderful thing and a, and a way that um, a way of looking at people who are suffering this this kind of life in a in a very very different way i don't know yeah. what that says about whether it's suitable for children but why why not why not yeah, is it suitable it's yeah interesting that idea that you know a book now with an 11 year old protagonist we would assume that it's for an 11 year old readership yeah. it would mm. be a middle grade novel it wouldn't be you know mm. and and there this is kind of like why i could imagine it being also problematic to try and market because of the way things are today mm. but um yeah what a shame well, yeah. <laughs> it would be if it had never been published because it is it's beautiful and it's very it's it's so human it's so kind of um i don't know allowing the reader to sort of see behind you know this unpleasantness you know mm. Of of real life, and we actually see very little of it. You know, there's there's yeah. a moment where things get quite tense at the races, where it seems she's she's met up with someone from that world she owes money to, and there's a real sinister sense there. But otherwise, she we sort we sort of piece it together from bits of bits of evidence um, rather than see the see firsthand the darkness and the ugliness and and the difficulties of her life because we see what Seymour sees. We see it in a different way, a much more yep. perceptive way, but we see her um, wearing her fabulous earrings, uh, dreaming of being a florist and living in a mansion and um, on, on one day and then something else on another and, and having all these wonderful but clearly... Um, unrealistic dreams for herself. We don't Robin Klein's sort of careful I think not to not to give us 
the darkness of when she goes and takes the drugs. We know when she goes off to do it, but we don't we don't ever actually see it. But in that way, it also yeah. doesn't glamorise it too much. But I, I come back to my, yeah. my original comment, though, that Robin Klein's books, my enduring memory of them is showing me aspects of my world that, that were not first and foremost or fr- like they were not immediately in my attention as mm. a as a say a pr- sort of a primary school age child but then growing up being a teenager in the 90s would would soon become things that I would I would cross paths with I would encounter um, yeah. another book that I was thinking about as I prepared was boss of the pool uh, where unless you know if if you were a suburban kid um, unless you you had for me and I didn't have any family experience there were no no friends at school who had any sort of uh, you know intellectual delay or other other sort of form of uh, different ability or neurodiversity that ma- that marked them in that way in the 90s or the the 80s but in that book I, I was exposed to this and then as I grew up, I now I now work um, in the disability sector, and I, I I can't I don't think I can ever overestimate the importance of knowing something like that in my world as a child, mm. and and I, I, I the same with came back to show you I could fly. I have no idea how any encounter I've had with someone who's used drugs or with drugs myself um, might have been changed if I hadn't had some understanding of that growing up, and mm. and that's what I find that's what I find kind of wonderful about it. It's also quite possible, or you realise it's quite possible after reading this, that you had lots of encounters mm. with people yeah. who had this aspect of their life um, that you never never knew about. Mm. Mm. And of course, it's also the deft way that, that Robin Klein does it. I mean, we, we've talked about uh, our point of view is Seymour, and it in, the story unfolds through his perspective. And it's a really quite limited view of the world. Um, we are almost locked behind that gate with him. Mm-hmm. But then we have Robin Klein dropping in the snippets of letters and lists mm. and correspondence from and about Angie. Yep. And reading it as an adult, this is so so wonderful and such a knowing nod to the reader. Um it's it's absolutely horrendous the scene you mentioned before where uh, we had the encounter at the races with um, with the the sort of the overbearing man and then later on we have Angie's sister it's Lynn isn't it mm. yeah Angie's sister Lynn make the sort of almost throwaway comment you have no idea how she gets her money yeah. sometimes and in my head I'm like oh gosh okay he was either a pimp or he is trading sexual favors for drugs and. Potentially, many young readers would not make that connection, but as an older reader, it, it's glaring. Mm, um, yeah. So it works on so many levels there. Those um, those inserted letters and lists and things are just so heartbreaking too, because um, you you really understand how much she's trying, but also how hopeless she's she up is at trying. <laughs> and she's all alone too. You know, she's she's. Um, through treating people so badly, uh, or you know, not intentionally, but but through letting people down over and over again for five years, as we learn, she's pushed everybody away from her, and she's truly alone with this um, this terribly difficult thing to to deal with. Just scraping together money for her rent at one moment, and then seeming to be very flush another, <laughs> and also. Um, uh, Sorry, I'm hesitating because I don't know whether to spoil with the pregnancy. Um, <laughs> it's a it's a book club. We have to trust that people have have read the book <laughs> a little bit. 
If not, they need to. <laughs> they do. Everyone needs to read it. Uh, well, anyway, I've forgotten where I was going. So. <laughs> Well, what I was what I was just thinking because I'm I'm looking at the time and I might get we might get kicked out of the studio in a minute. Um, I, I had something that I thought we could wrap up with um, because Simone, I I actually feel like I poorly introduced you before because as well as all your wonderful books, you wrote the introduction to came back to show you I could fly, and in that introduction, you describe Robin Klein's books as literary hymns to the nowhereness of adolescence, oh, yes. and I wondered. <laughs> Do do you or do we feel that a book like Came Back holds up today in a world where YA has come to be dominated and even even identified by franchises like Harry Potter, The Hunger Games, and their ilk? Where does it stand now? Uh, see, look, this is this is where it's difficult because I don't know whether I'm just kind of totally numbed by nostalgia or on the table. Feel, we all loved it. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I feel like it's the true story of of, of what goes on. I feel like it's what sort of the, the feelings and the emotions that are in this book are still what the feelings and emotions of young people are today, um, much more so than books like sort of something like Hunger Games or, you know, I feel like those books are just these kind of, um, I don't know, entertainments and distractions and um, I don't know. Uh, that's dismissive. I don't mean to dismiss them as well, but, yeah, this book... Um, it's got depth, I think, is one of the things. Yeah. Well, I mean, it just feels real, I guess. that's yeah. And I think, too, Robin Klein never underestimates her readers. She, she's written something with a lot of complexity and nuance, and she, she just lets the readers take what they will from that, which is, is a really wonderful thing, I think, for And it's for like anyone 90 reading. pages or something. It's slim as, you mm. know. It just words are not wasted in any way. Like I just think I wish I wish I don't know. I wish more people would read it. <laughs> <laughs> you are in the Australian Classics Book Club. We are discussing Came Back to Show You I Could Fly by Robin Klein. I'm speaking with Jane Pearson, she's a senior editor at Text Publishing, and Simone Howell, her um along with her co authors Kath Crowley and Fiona Wood, her latest book won the CBCA Book of the Year for Older Readers. It was Take Three Girls. Uh, Simone, Jane, thank you so much for for joining me in the book club. Pleasure, Andrew. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was great. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today on the Final Draft podcast. Final Draft is recorded on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch with us. You can drop us a line on the socials. You can just leave us a comment wherever you're listening to this podcast. Even a star rating, a tick, however you want to let us know. It's a way to help others discover incredible Australian writing. Till then, though, see you later. Happy reading. Bye for now.